back in. Uh, so as I said, uh, we're very excited this morning to have our friends Rick and Bromlin Mooney sharing with us. Rick and Bromlin have been a part of Christ Central for a number of years uh, with their two daughters. And uh, most recently, they, they helped out this past year in fuel with our youth group. And so I got to know them even more. And uh, a number of times they got to share with with our fuel, with our middle school and high school crew about biblical justice and about the work of IJM uh, that they've very much been involved in. And so we're very excited that they get to come this morning and they get to share what God's been stirring in their heart, not just for a couple of years, but for 20 years. 22. Add them together. Awesome. Floor is yours. How's this? Is this okay? All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, if you're visiting, if this is your first time here and uh, you came because you heard about the gifted speakers, uh, the gifted preachers that are here, um, that's very true. We do have very gifted preachers, but that will be next week. Okay, make sure you come back <laughs> next week. Okay, that, it's not this week. We are not uh, gifted preachers. In fact, um, I'm a police officer here in Freverton. Uh, my current role is a polygraph examiner. Uh, my wife, Brahman, here is a uh, Crown Attorney uh, with the province of New Brunswick under the Attorney General's office. Uh, works here in Fredericton, and uh, so we're not gifted preachers, but we're going to be uh, speaking from the Word of God, so it really doesn't matter, um, and uh, we, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about biblical justice, as you can see, um, this is a large topic, and really we're only going to be at a very high level scratching the surface, in my opinion, uh, to give, uh, you know, pardon the pun, but to give justice to the topic, I think we'd probably take uh, months of time up here. Uh, we did ask for that, and uh, uh, Joe said sure, um, but Mark, uh, Mark said no. So, yeah. that's, that's a lie. <laughs> they always play that good cup basketball. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our title is the Bibli Biblical Justice and the Love of God. And uh, we are so thankful that we're part of a church that does not see a separation or a distinction between uh, God's love and, uh, and his justice. Uh, and that's been evidenced over, over the, the years, you know, through various ministries. I think of, uh, you know, sandwich runs, street level, and of course now uh, with, uh, with kids, um, uh, the kids program, everything that's been going on with that uh, and, and numerous others. And so make no mistake, uh, you folks are out there doing justice, and, uh, and so this is already burning in your hearts. We know that, right? But uh, this whole idea of God's justice and his love mixing together uh, has not always been that way. In fact, uh, and maybe before I get started, I do want to make a footnote, um, and without making the whole thing a footnote, I'll just say that uh, many of the ideas and thoughts that we're going to be sharing today uh, come from Gary Haugen, the uh, founder and CEO of International Justice Mission, as well as uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author of Generous Justice. And, uh, and Tim Keller writes that um, during the 20th century in the American church, there was in fact a divide uh, between churches who embraced God's justice. Um, many of the, uh, the liberal mainline churches, in fact, were the ones who were out there embracing justice. But many of the fundamentalist churches uh, really were valuing personal salvation and were, in fact, viewing doing justice with suspicion. And we see that worked out in the civil rights movement 
where black Americans uh, fought very hard for basic human rights and were successful in that battle. Um, and uh, this was seen as a, as a great victory for the church. And in fact, it was, right? And uh, I remember being in Washington, D.C. at the Martin Luther King Memorial statue and, and just reading through some of his thoughts on justice and, and having tears in my eyes. And I remember uh, we were there and there was a lady from Alabama, a, a wonderful black family that came up to us and kind of put her arm on Brahma and said, uh, are you folks from Alabama? We're like, no, from Canada. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> So, but sadly though, on a, on a serious note, uh, historians will tell us that even though this was a, a, a massive victory for the church, um, many of the white churches in the South were content with the status quo um, of white supremacy and were actually passively resistant to this movement. Uh, when I say white supremacy, what I guess in their minds would have been white supremacy. Famous theologian Anders Nydren's work, uh, Agape and Eros, published in the 1930s argued that God's attitude to man is not characterized by justice, but by agape. Eros and love, uh, by the way, or agape and eros is ranked as one of the classics of Christian theology and is cited as one of the most noteworthy books of the 20th century. His argument was that for God, love and justice do not mix at all. This doesn't seem to line up with what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke 11:42. He says this, What sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. And we know that Nehemiah was a man, you might recognize that name, Nehemiah, anyone? Um, Nehemiah was a man who did not neglect the most important things. And with Joe's blessing, uh, we wanted to jump off of our weekend away uh, where Joe talked and, and spoke on Nehemiah, chapter, especially uh, chapter 4 and chapter 6. And uh, if you weren't there, you're not familiar with the story. Nehemiah lived uh, during the reign of the Persian Empire, uh, during the exile of Israel from their homeland because of their sin. And Nehemiah was in a very prominent position. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He caught word that some of the remnants in Judah were, under, were in distress and the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down and burned, the gates burned by fire. And so he gained permission to go back uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And of course, Joe uh, makes the parallel of that great work that happened then. It's very similar to the great work that we're about today in advancing God's kingdom. And he also talked about the opposition that comes against us when we endeavor uh, in this great work. But right in the middle of that, right in the heart of that, of course, is chapter 5. And uh, that's what we're going to be taking a look at here this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, we'll read through that. Or you can just read it uh, along with me on the screen. It's a little small there, but uh, I'm going to read it out. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. 
Others said we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. Others said we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to eat. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. This is Nehemiah speaking. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials, and I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. At the meeting, I said to them, we're doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Can you guys hear me? Okay, so what we want to do is we want to focus on three points from this passage of Nehemiah. So we're going to go through three things and try to bring it into the modern day context. So one, Nehemiah saw the injustice and he was deeply moved. I'm going to have to spit my gum out. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Should I give it to Brent? It's on the floor, remind me. Okay, so he saw the injustice and he was deeply moved. And then secondly, what did he do? He thought about it or he considered what he was going to do next. So that's our second point. And lastly, the third thing he did was he called out to the governing authorities to fulfill their God-given mandate. So those are going to be our focuses today. And um, we are also, through this um, talk, going to speak to you a bit about something called International Justice Mission that Rick and I are involved in. Uh, We're going to talk about a trip that we recently took to Uganda, but we're just going to kind of work it into this message of Nehemiah. So... First of all, so for point number one, we see Nehemiah recognizing the injustice. It infected him deeply, and we see in the passage that he says he became very angry. So as a church, uh, we are at a very interesting time in history where injustice against the world's poor, uh, I would argue, is at an unprecedented level. So if you can think back historically, in over 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade, it's estimated that about 12 million people uh, were seized from Africa and sold as slaves. So this is over a 400-year period, 12 million people. So I, I don't know how many of you would be aware today that conservative estimates, this is conservative, uh, the belief is that there are around 45 million people, I bet you you guys can't see me over there, because I'm short and there's a good place to stand, doesn't matter, as long as you can hear me. Um, So the estimates are that around 45 million people are held as slaves today, that's right now. So if you think our country, that's about the population of our country. So if you were to start in Newfoundland and make your way to British Columbia and everywhere you go, every town, every village, every city, 
Everyone is a slave. So that's conservative estimates. So think about that. That's a lot to kind of wrap your mind around. But 45 million conservatively, when we compare that to 12 million over 400 years. So that's not to mention, you know, other forms of uh, violent oppression. So domestic violence in its most severe forms, police abuse of power property theft, citizens' rights uh, abuses, and the list goes on and on. So I've put this picture up uh, today, uh, a picture of modern-day slavery. And of course, it takes lots of forms and affects lots of people, uh, families, men, women, children. But the United Nations says that about 20% of the slaves in the world today are actually children. And depending on the country that you're living in, that number can be as high as 100%. So the United Nations also tells us, and I'm going to quote for that, from the United Nations, they say that most poor people do not live under the shelter of the law, but they live far from the law's protection. So that's what the United Nations says. I don't know if you heard that, but most poor people do not live under the shelter of the law, but far from the law's protection. So when we, when we think that there's about estimated about four billion people who live under five dollars a day just kind of think about the implications of that if most of the, if those people have no protection so like nehemiah when we think about these things and we're considering what's going on in our world today as the church we should be angry i should be angry if i'm not angry i should be so we need to be angry so as I mentioned, we're going to talk to you a little bit. We don't want to turn this into an international justice mission talk. That's not what this is. But we do want to use that a, a, a bit as a highlight to tell you about some of the things that believers are doing around the world. And, and IJM's part of that. So Rick and I are part of an uh, organization called International Justice Mission. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. Probably many have not, so we are just going to pretend like you don't know what we're talking about. Uh, we're going to give you a very brief overview very quickly because we don't want it to dominate this presentation. And we're just going to call it IJM because it is uh, quicker to say than the full thing. So we are going to give you a, a six-minute video, I believe. Three three-minute video, Rick knows the videos, uh, introducing what International Justice Mission is. Uh, in three minutes, I'll talk a little bit more about it, and then we'll move on.
have operations all over the world, rescuing people from slavery. Because today there are criminals who abuse children, sell girls. Today, there are thousands of people gathering to seek justice for those in slavery. We are a group of lawyers, counselors, activists, and supporters. We are called International Justice Mission. And together, we form the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. But slavery won't come to an end until criminals know they can't get away with it. So we partner with local police to arrest and prosecute criminals. This sends a message to slave owners that we will not go away. We stay with the survivors until they are healed, until they are free. Each year, we rescue thousands of slaves and protect millions around the world. We are transforming how justice systems protect their citizens. To those who are still enslaved, we promise to find you. We will get you home to your family. back you can hear me okay so as we just saw from that video uh, IJM is an organization of people from all different walks of life with all different skills accountants social workers students uh, stay-at-home moms lawyers you name it um, people from all around the world but most importantly they are the church. So this is an organization that is comprised, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the history of it in a minute, but, but what I want you to take away the most is, is that this is the body of Christ. So in order to work for this organization or to uh, give any of your time to it, um, you know, in a professional capacity or in a volunteer capacity, it's vital that you're a believer. Prayer is essential, and they know that this is God's work, not ours. We are what he uses to advance his kingdom. So uh, when we say IJM, I'd almost like it to be church, but I'll use IJM and I'll use the two uh, interchangeably. So what do I do with the clicker? 
So I'm going to give you a little snapshot uh, briefly, and this is at warp speed. Usually we take about an hour to do this, uh, but we will not do that today. Should have just clicked to the next. Okay, so this is a map, as you can see, uh, to show you uh, IJM's global presence. So again, this is the church, and it is the largest organization of its type, which I think is really exciting that this is what the church is doing. Uh, and it has a presence in 17 communities around the globe, so from Africa to Latin America to South and Southeast Asia. And the focus of the work uh, is different depending on the country uh, that they are in. But uh, you can see, if anybody wants to talk to us afterwards, we can give you more details on the kind of work that they do and where they do it. There is an IJM Canada. It's in London, Ontario. Headquarters is in Washington, DC. So IJM's vision, its mission, is to rescue thousands protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. So this organization, I'll give you a little bit of background, I won't give much, but it was started in 1994 by a man who Rick has already told you his name. His name is Gary Haugen. So Gary Haugen is first and foremost a Christian. He is also a lawyer, uh, and in the 90s he was working for the United States Department of Justice. When the Rwandan genocide happened, uh, I'm not sure how many, I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about, depending on your age, but during the genocide in 1994, Mr. Haugen was seconded from the United States Department of Justice uh, to go to Rwanda, and he was the lead investigator into the genocide. So he was there, uh, he investigated it, and he, when he came back, he called it one of the greatest failures of simple human compassion in the history of our species. So that, that's how he felt when he came home and during his time there. So Gary, I'll call him Gary instead of using his full name because it's faster. Uh, Gary was, was deeply moved and he did what Nehemiah did. So he did step one, he thought it over. He came back to Washington, D.C. He considered his own, his own life and his actions in light of the biblical call that we see in Isaiah to seek justice and help the oppressed. So after a lot of thought, a lot of prayer, and a lot of things that happened that we don't have time to get into, IJM was born uh, in 1994, a direct result out of his time in Rwanda. And I just read to you Psalms 41.1 says, Blessed is the man who considers the poor. So again, considered means to give attention to a subject, to act wisely and successfully with regard to it. So that's, that's what IJM attempts to do. And that's what we attempt to do as followers of Christ. Because we know this is a biblical call. It's not something that starts with us. So just briefly, again, uh, we would typically go into more detail, but I'll just tell you that IJM protects the poor from violence uh, by partnering with local authorities and other NGOs to rescue victims, to bring criminals to justice, to restore survivors, and ultimately to strengthen justice systems. The ultimate goal is pr to protect uh, the poor from various forms of violence. 
So as I mentioned earlier, uh, Rick and I in March had the great privilege to travel to Uganda. So one of the countries that IJM is working in uh, is the country of Uganda and Africa. And we had the great privilege to go uh, with International Justice Mission Canada. And this is our considering what is next stage as Nehemiah did. So there's a, we've brought a few pictures. Uh, we have tons, but we'll just go through a few. Some pictures that we took a typical market scene. Uh, in Uganda. So I, we want to talk briefly about what they are doing there. Again, remembering that this, I was just so humbled while we were there that to see what the church is doing. Because again, IJM is the church in one country of many countries. Um, but the first thing, one of the first areas that they are combating is something called property theft. So I referenced that earlier. So we saw this mostly in Kampala. I mean, it's happening throughout the country. But during our time in Kampala, which is the capital uh, of Uganda, we heard about property theft. And um, basically what this is, is the poor and the vulnerable uh, who don't have much to begin with. They have a home and they have land and they have children. And the typical story is that a widow will, someone will become a widow, her husband will die. And usually very quickly after his death, either his brothers or the neighbors or whoever it might be will come and violently try to take that land from her. So that, in a nutshell, is what property theft is. And this is one of the areas that they are working in uh, in Uganda. That's just as a quick picture of us uh, with the chief magistrate uh, of one of the districts that we were in where IJM is working, uh, again, to give support to widows and children who have had their homes taken from them. And this is a picture of a lady that we, uh, we got to meet. We actually got to travel to her home. She's one of IJM's clients. Um, and she, her story is, a, is similar to what I just described her. She's actually 38 years old, and her husband died of malaria. And within a few days, his brothers uh, decided that the little house that she has with her children that she raises would be theirs and not hers anymore. And we actually got to visit. We did lots and lots of things, and we can't even scratch the surface of what we did, but this is some of how we spent our time. We traveled to this woman's home. This, this is her home. Uh, IJM was able to get it back for her through the services and the expertise that they have. And she is able to actually support herself and continue raising the children that she has on her own. This is a picture of her, and she's actually raising her granddaughter as well. She's got her own kids, but uh, she's got some children uh, that are grandchildren. And a picture uh, of a woman beside her named Alice. She is a social worker uh, employed by International Justice Mission in Uganda. She is from Uganda. Uh, the wonderful thing is most of the people who work in the organization are local to that country and they are giving their skills and their expertise uh, to help and, and they are believers. 
So part of this lady's story was through the restoration process of getting her home back and trying to get her on her feet, uh, IJM assisted her in starting her own business. She has, uh, she has pigs that she sells to support herself. So there's a couple pictures. So that's one of the areas that they're, that they're working in in Uganda. One of the other areas near, we got to travel to a place called Fort Portal. So it's on the Congolese border. And the work that they're doing there in Fort Portal is uh, sexual violence against children uh, and women, but predominantly children. And the work there uh, is being funded by the World Bank because they were building, in a nutshell, what was happening was a highway was put in. And what they realized was happening is that the workers who were building this highway were taking advantage, that's not the right terminology, but there's kids here, I will call it taking advantage uh, and being perpetrators of sexual violence against children. And the World Bank said, time out. This is happening, we need help. And IJM is one of the organizations that they brought in to lead the work there against the sexual exploitation uh, of children in that area. So this is just a picture of a couple of kids that we saw uh, walking on their way to school. This is a picture uh, of one of the camps that these men were working in. And we, uh, again, we did a lot of things, but one of the things we did, was we visited a, um, this is actually a police headquarters, this little hut that we're getting into. So the man that runs this uh, station oversees 270 police officers, and it happens from this little hut that I think you could cook an egg in because of the heat. And here's another picture uh, of an, this is a police station as well uh, on our way to Fort Portal. So that's part of the work they're doing at Fort Portal. And I will just uh, wrap up by saying they are also working in the northern part of the country uh, to combat the most severe forms of domestic violence. So I'm talking murder, attempted murder, maiming, severe, severe forms of domestic violence. So, and then they are also doing work in refugee camps. So in the country, IJM is doing a lot. It was really humbling to see all that they're doing. I know that's a very quick uh, overview, but uh, there it is in a nutshell. I think that's the last slide. You gotta show the video? All right. I forgot, <laughs> we have a video a six-minute video. Uh, National Geographic recently did a, uh, a video. We're not going to show you the whole video because it's too long, but it is um, from the field office, one of them that we were working in, and it's the highlight is on the property theft issue. So we thought it'd be valuable for you to see some of the clients that IJM has worked with, uh, some of the staff members, and uh, National Geographic has prepared this video. So if I just... Nevantuala kwa nabana wangi. Banu mbaje kwa nabana wangi. Yegeze wako timanini, 
kumelenga kuwelite melejali mika okulima banenga kuzibu nebatuwala ensoro zangezali ya waka kali chandu manyo okulaba mginte yangu wajikulie nefa okulaba mbabako vista endagano kuchifuba yegabechi yendu yu inda kumolaji Uina sente mika, unumpa wabina wa, yonu ukolaji. Gie nkole de miaka, nilgeda mdachi kinto ninyomu ujo. Echida lechasi mbukununa, umkule mbezo yu wasajia, kansala, niliangamba, kichentana yomwana umiri ndikule kebdewo. Tutawana mbukusime dana Nekifana nyinchu Chanda kamulala nyo Mbutuwe kujana mbukusu Wakino Wati wakule chintu wakino Nesiri kilila Nekulile na kumutima Kuleka mga wansimu dentana atenga nchari mwamu Nalinga agamba wakukola kukuzala. Nama katonda alimba, alimba wakanda kangi. Avala. Nari wamba ndemu. Okay, so we just, uh, for the sake of time, stopped it there. But um, thankfully, uh, and th thanks to God, really, and the help of IJM, Betty's story does have a very happy ending. And there are many happy endings that we're seeing all around the world when people uh, take up this biblical call, simply follow what, uh, what God is asking us to do. And uh, we think about Micah, where God says this is what is required of us, right? Is to seek justice, um, uh, mercy, and walk humbly with our God. This young boy here asks a, uh, a very important question at the end. He says, who will love me? I think it's important that we consider that question as a church because it's being asked by millions of children around the world, uh, children and adults alike. And so how would Jesus answer that question? Well, when Jesus encountered the widow in Nain, if you remember uh, the biblical account, uh, she, had, uh, she was mourning. She lost her only son. So she had lost her husband previously, and now she'd lost her only son. How did he react? Well, the Bible says his heart was filled with compassion. You see, Jesus would have understood in his day what it would have meant for a widow to lose her only son. It would have meant something very similar that it would have for Betty uh, in Uganda. No rights, no protection, no money. And Jesus acted and he raised her son from the dead. Jesus is the one who's going to bring justice to the world. How do we know that? Well, Isaiah 42, 3-4 says this, He will bring justice, speaking of Jesus, He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will not falter until, until justice prevails throughout the earth. But how is he going to do that? Well, if you just take a minute to look around you, look at some of the people around you, this is how he's going to do it. Uh, this is God's plan. Um, we know that we are God's partner in this, and uh, this is plan A. There's no plan B. 
God could do this all alone. He doesn't need our help, but he wants our help. And this is the, this is the way he's designed it. This is his chosen plan. And, uh, you know, and, and I think part of it is that relationship, right? God wants us with him. And it reminds me, I'm going to embarrass Marley here a little bit, but uh, it reminds me of a time when Marley was just little, maybe three and a half, four years old. She's, not, she's ignoring me here. Um, <laughs> but uh, we were out piling wood in the yard, and uh, she was out there, and you know, she's really more getting in my way than anything else, but she's kind of passing me little sticks that she can lift, and, uh, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And she said to me, um, Dad, am I a junior wood helper? And it's just like, boom, it just hit me right in the heart. And it's just like, you know, yeah, I could probably work a lot faster if she wasn't here past me, these little sticks, but it was about having her with me, right? And I think it's, I think it's like that for God. The third point we want to emphasize here is, um, I'm just going to, yeah, with lots of time. Third point we want to emphasize is how Nehemiah called on the governing authorities to fulfill their duties to end the injustice. And all around the world, IJM is using strategic means to do that very thing, to call on governing authorities, because slavery and violent injustice in a nation exists or not by the will of the governing authorities. Consider how God uh, chose to show his justice and love to the nation of Israel when he sent Moses to Pharaoh, the governing authority. And of course, we know the rest of the story, the Exodus story. The Israelites uh, were released from slavery, and God was not impassioned about this. We say it was by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm that he liberated um, approximately two million people from slavery. But what about the rest of the church? What about us? Okay, where are we going with this? Well, for over 400 years, as Brahman has alluded to, the transatlantic slave trade uh, began in the 15th century and millions of people were extracted from the coasts of Africa. They were brought to the Americas by the great uh, trading nations of the world and they were treated as property. They were bought and sold on the free market. And this went on for hundreds of years, for 400 years, in fact. And we say 12 million people those are really, that's an estimate of the people who survived. There were many people who lost their lives on the transit, in transit. And of course, we don't have the numbers for those people, but it was a lot of people. And uh, during the, those years, uh, the prophetic voice of godly men was brought against this practice. But it was brought against the practice by a few. And there were basically largely um, voices calling out in the wilderness. And their voices went uh, largely unheard until the beginning of the 19th century when something extraordinary happened. The church began to wake up. God began to wake up his church in what is, uh, historians will tell us uh, as part of the sec second and third great awakenings. And they heard the prophetic voice of men like uh, William Wilberforce, Sojourner Truth, and others. And the church began to rise up and awake by the millions. They heard this call for justice and began to call on uh, the governing authorities. And over the course of a generation, this transatlantic slave trade that was fueling the, the economic economies, uh, or the economies rather, of these uh, slave trading nations, 
It brought it to its knees within a generation. And then as Gary Haugen so eloquently puts it, the church by the millions went back to sleep until we find ourselves where we are here today. At this point in history, our generation, our watch. So the heart of our message today is that the work of justice is for all of us. We all have different callings. We all have different talents and abilities. We're all going to be doing different things. But as we allow God's love to penetrate our hearts, allow his compassion to fill our hearts, it's his grace that makes us just. We've heard the word revival used often, especially in recent days and recent times. And, you know, we're praying for revival. And I believe revival is going to come. And we may see it in our day. And what will it look like? We don't know. But one thing I do know and believe with all my heart is that justice will be at the very heart of it. Because we know that this is what God wants. Consider what God says in Amos. This is before the exile to Babylon. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, I hate your show and pretense, the hypocrisy, hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your, all your peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise, God says. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And uh, I brought this slide along today. Some of you may have seen it before. This was a uh, prophetic picture given to a woman at the Vineyard Church in Winnipeg, and they actually have this mural uh, in their church. And it's a picture uh, of the muskox. And, of course, it's a, it's a picture of strength. And if you notice the little uh, picture down on the right-hand corner there, you'll notice the middle of that circle is all the little ones or the vulnerable ones. And so when the wolves come, when the predators come, the muskox take a defensive position around the young, around the sick, around the weak. And, you know, it's a very prophetic picture of what the Church of Jesus Christ is meant to be when we take up this call for justice. And, um, you know, I... Th I I thought a lot about kind of how we would end this, and um, I wasn't quite sure. Uh, but yesterday, I remember the words of John Ortberg, and uh, he talks about uh, the Christian life, the experience with the Holy Spirit, uh, and uses a metaphor of a sailboat. And uh, he says that, you know, we, you know, we're sitting in the water. Um, we can't really make the wind blow. We can't make the boat move. But we can raise the sails. Right? So that when the wind blows, we're ready to catch that wind. And I would encourage you, you know, if this is new to you, uh, to explore it, to consider what the scripture says. And we've maybe brought up four, five, six scriptures here today of a thousand scriptures in the Bible related to uh, the poor, justice, oppression. Right? God is serious about this. And in our prayer lives, in our giving, in our repentance. May we be thinking about, as Christ Central Church, how we're going to raise that mighty sail or continue to raise that mighty sail of justice 
right? Because it's designed for a schooner, it's designed to go along our own coasts, but it's also designed to catch those mighty trade winds and take us, who knows where God wants to take us with it. So I hope you've ca caught a little bit of our heart today. Um, again, it is a huge topic and uh, we, uh, we really appreciate the opportunity that the church has provided. So thank you very much. I'll just turn it back over to you, uh, Brent.